difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, good evening. It's uh, the 10th of April. We're here in Berkeley, California. Welcome to friends who are joining us online from wherever you might be. We're going to be explaining the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra tonight. So let's begin by chanting the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly, which you'll find on the front cover of your text. So if you look right there on the cover, we will uh, use that as our invocation.
Please uh, turn in your text to page 90 and 91. It's the very back, very last page of our text, page 90 and 91. Let's look at our uh, the second stanza, the second paragraph. Do the Chinese first. Xiu xing bo luo mi. Yuan li chan xu kuang. Ru shuo er xiu xing. An zhu shi yu zhong. Okay, over to the right. They cultivate all the paramitas. They have left flattery and deceit far behind. Their deeds match their words. And true speech is their refuge. Okay, the, let's uh, chant the Chinese. Bodhisattvas, uh, awakened beings, and the uh, ten, the ten grounds chapter, our chapters, is the textbook for describing what bodhisattvas do, what they like, how they think, and this this chapter talks particularly about how they t- how they speak, how bodhisattvas talk, what what bodhisattvas say. Um, it starts out by saying they cultivate all the paramitas. And paramitas are what are called perfections. And it also, if you take the Sanskrit and divide it in another way, it means things that cross over. 
things that take you across, like a bridge crosses you over. Paramitas are very much like bridges. And the idea is that a paramita is a practice, it's a, a, a behavior that takes you from something you don't want over to something that you want. And the things that we don't want, for example, are stinginess, which is if you decide that you're going to embark on a spiritual path, let's say you are in the world, but you're looking for something more. You've been in the world long enough to realize that, that it's pretty much the same flavor. Maybe it's a little better this week, this year, but then it's a little worse the next year. And you still wind up in the same place. And you put in some effort and then you get lazy and fall back and kind of wind up always in the same place, no matter how hard you try. And the thought occurs, is there more? Is there something more here? Is this it? Is this really all there is? Just trying something a little different at the restaurant, a little different flavor, winds up pretty much the same. There's got to be more than that. Um, there's a, I don't know if people, how many people saw the PBS uh, movie on Wednesday night called The Buddha? Raise your hands. Okay, four, five, good. We had a, uh, last night a Marty's group. There were two, two people out of 30. Pretty good, pretty good. If you go to pbs.org and look on the front page, you'll see um, prominently featured this two-hour documentary called The Buddha. And somebody made the movie, did a really nice job. PBS picked it up and highly touted it, pushed it big around the country. And uh, it was on Wednesday night. But you can go online and watch the whole thing, or episode by episode. And in the PBS it's not their movie. It's someone. It's a private filmmaker, independent filmmaker, who then got it on 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 the big channel, public broadcasting. But in the story, they really make the point about how the prince Siddhartha asked those questions I just asked. He lived really well. He had absolutely everything the world tells us we should want. All the good stuff. He had. The best of the good stuff. The best of the best of the good stuff. You can imagine somebody who was in line to be king of one of the 16 countries of India and maybe unite all of the 16 countries of India. You know that he had a life of uh, affluence. He was affluent. He had good stuff. Best food, best entertainment. Um, he never went anywhere without canopy over his head shielding from the sun or the wind or the rain and, and to compound it if you can imagine what it was like his father the king whose name was Sudodana heard the prediction at birth that his son his brand new baby boy was going to be either ruler of India or a holy man he was going to have everything or give everything up. And of course, Dad wanted the line to continue. He wanted his son to step behind him and become the next king. So what did he do? He tried the great, the great delusion. He tried to convince the prince that 
this life was it. Everything was happy, pleasant, healthy, beautiful, enjoyable, eternally summer. Literally, they pulled anything that wilted or got old out of his surroundings so that he would never see anything that would trigger his insight into the true nature of things that come together, which is they fall apart. So it worked for years. And the, the documentary um, that we saw um, made the point that, that the prince lived a really, really sybaritic kind of playboy that is to say, not as a playboy, he was a virtuous young man, but he enjoyed everything to the max. Man, did he have it good. But there came that time when he went out of the palace into the city and in quick succession saw old age, sickness, death, and then he saw a cultivator, a practitioner, and Sure enough, it did exactly what his father had hoped to prevent. It triggered his awareness that things were not what they seemed. And then those questions came crashing down on his head. Isn't there more? There's got to be more because he connected, yeah, I'm going to get old, me. Yeah, I'm going to get sick, me. Yeah, I'm going to die just like that corpse there. That's going to be me at some point. Not tomorrow, but before long. So what to do? what to do about that. That was the big aha for the prince was, man, there's got to be a way. And then he saw this cultivator, this very serene individual walking along and asked him, what do you do? And the cultivator said, I cultivate the way. What way do you cultivate? He said, the way that ends birth and death. Well, who can do that? Said the prince. And the cultivator said, anybody can and you will follow me. So he did. He did. That night, in fact, he made what was called the Great Renunciation. And so, if we have uh, asked ourselves those questions at any point and looked deeply into the nature of things and said, there's got to be something else. Isn't there more? Is this all there is? Then we're ready for the paramitas these things that carry us across. Suppose we have decided that we want to find out for ourselves about what's in store, what's, what's the real nature of things. Then the Buddha said, okay, let's talk. Uh, for example, stinginess is an attitude regarding stuff and self. It's me and mine and all mine. The more the mind, the better. In fact, I want it all. And that attitude uh, creates a, an affliction, a trouble in mind, body and mind called stinginess. And it will definitely slow you down on the spiritual path. So the, uh, how do you, if you decide, yeah, that's true, you know, I, generosity is good. My attitude towards stuff can't be to cling to it if I'm going to really see the nature of all things that go through, including my body. So I want to learn to be generous. And so the first paramita that crosses over that stinginess is called giving, generosity. 
right? Some people translate it as charity, but it's bu shi in, in Chinese, just a kind of an attitude of not clinging to stuff, but letting it move through. All right, that's the first paramita, giving crosses over stinginess. Okay, and then there, there are six more. The second one is precepts or a virtuous lifestyle, an ethical foundation that you commit to. And what that crosses over is the, that sense of anything goes. And by golly, if I had to say what in my life turned around most dramatically from before I encountered real Buddhist practice and after, it would be issues around the question of freedom and moral commitment or moral guide, guidelines. When I was younger, boy, oh boy, did I ever buy the notion of life was meant to be lived as an outlaw. That was what was celebrated when I was growing up. And John Wayne played certain characters that, you know, don't fence me in was the model. Just any rule that you give me, I can break it. Just try me. You know, rules are meant to be broken and I'm the one to do it. And it was also uh, one of the great cultural heroes when I was growing up was James Bond, 007. You laugh, but it was big back then. I was, when I was a teenager, my dad was reading all the Ian Fleming novels and I would pilfer them off his nightstand and read them one by one. I read them every single one. And James Bond is someone who lacks a moral compass, basically. He's a... You know, he's a romantic uh, fiction character, but ethically, he's uh, completely, um, what would you say? He's, uh, he's lives like a pirate. He's a mercenary. Uh, he lives by whim and serves a uh, very dubious uh, masters. So living as a spy, um, he's... If you look at the five precepts, killing, stealing, lust, lies, and intoxicants, and you compare them to James Bond, it's like, okay, give me a precept he's not breaking. You know, there isn't one. So, but we thought James Bond was it, seriously. And read his books and, and try to you know, imitate. You become what you behold. And if you're reading James Bond, then 007, shaken, not stirred. You know. So that was, growing up, that was, that was celebrated. And you could do, it'd be a very interesting master's thesis. If anybody's looking for a topic, pick up uh, the American anti-hero. The idea of a, our, the people we celebrated were the ones who broke the laws, who walked alone. They were so uh, isolated from any concept of connectedness or compassion or kindness that uh, they, they kind of carved out a niche over here of self-made man and woman which is just a lie you know who is self-made uh, anybody pop out of mother's side you know kind of virgin intacta no we all born of parents self-made man no we're all made from mothers sorry no such thing as a self-made woman or man and yet we try to live that way we obey only our inner compass and if that compass is confused or following trend or fashion 
or following uh, desire and market values or following just impulse or instinct, then that's going to be uh, a life of much harm and little good, much selfishness and little service. So uh, anyway, that second paramita is called jie, which is to say um, ethical compass. Um, when I did a pilgrimage at one point in my, in my formation as a monk, um, we bowed through a place uh, in central California um, called Morro Bay. Morro Bay has this big rock out in the harbor. And I remember south of uh, Morro Bay coming up, this uh, woman uh, stopped her car and, and uh, handed over some water. She had filled up three plastic jugs with water, which was in short supply in, in uh, years of the drought down in central California. And she said, boy, you know, she said, I read about what you guys believe. Those five rules that you have, no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lies, no intoxicants. She said, man, that is the best news I've heard since I was a kid. She said, if you had those five rules, you wouldn't have any trouble in your life, she said. And it was for her, it was just like, you know, it's just, there it is. If you had those five rules, you wouldn't have any trouble in your life. And when I say, growing up with James Bond and, and Bronco Lane and Ty Harden and uh, Bart Maverick and Daniel Boone and, and Davy Crockett and all these heroes who live by their guns, you know, Matt Dillon, gun smoke. To have to go from there, I was just soaking that up like any child of the TV age. And then to have somebody say, actually, if you want to end suffering, try cherishing life instead of killing. Try sharing material instead of being greedy. Try honoring your promises instead of being promiscuous. Try integrity instead of lying or saying what wins, what, what scores. And try sobriety instead of poisoning your mind with stuff that makes you totally crazy. And so it was like, if I'd heard somebody say that, you know what I would have said back then? No thanks. That sounds like no fun to me. <laughs> I've never read of any hero who says no killing, no stealing. I hadn't heard the Buddha's story. But here's a genuine hero, in fact, a description of many heroes who, instead of following James Bond's kiss, kiss, bang, bang, you know, anything goes, it's no. In fact, there are ways to live that from humanity's dawn have been praised by every religious founder that ever left anything behind, right? The Holy Quran talks about ethical commitment. The Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, says, thou shalt not. Is that ambiguous? No, thou shalt not. Four out of five. The one that doesn't match is intoxicants. The uh, yoga aphorisms of Patanjali say the same. What will a yogi do? The yogi has to say, these things I avoid because I am seeking a higher state. 
I want concentration undivided. I want purity of mind. I want no turbulence in my consciousness. Therefore, the advanced yogi will avoid what? Killing, harming, stealing, lies, intoxicants, lust. So here we have Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism and their founders all saying, mm -hmm. in fact, it's not whatever dude. That's not the way to live successfully. Whatever. Or, I do what I want. Get out of my way. You know, which is the kind of the, the self-made anti-hero. So, uh, that was a big turnaround for me. And if you'd asked me at age 15 that I would be saying these things 30 years later, I would have said, mm -mm, no, don't think so. But now, having heard, you know, having looked into it more deeply, it's you have to give up something to accept the idea that there are rules that increase freedom. Isn't that funny? Paradoxical, right? There are rules that make you freer. Because my idea before was any rule you give me limits my freedom. That's why don't fence me in. I do what I want. And you can't make me do what you want. That was ignorance chaining me in to what? To desire, basically, to my next thought. The idea that there are rules that set you free sounds contradictory, but in fact, it is the case. So, that was the big turnaround for me. So, that's the second paramita, is this notion of jie, precepts, or ethical commitment. What does it cross over? It crosses over the ignorance and confusion of I do what I want, get out of my way. Which ties you into the karma that you commit. Okay, third is patience. Crosses over anger. Fourth is vigor or strength which crosses over which is the tool, the, the vehicle, the means by which you cross over from uh, no effort or effort that scatters and doesn't sustain effort that is intermittent and therefore doesn't catch fire right if you ever took a magnifying glass and <coughs> held it on a leaf you had to wait while the sun's rays burn 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 and then comes the fire if you moved it before you just had a charred leaf you didn't have fire vigor crosses over that kind of of no penetration effort. Effort that doesn't come to success. The last two are samadhi, which is Sanskrit for concentration. Ding, li, samme. And it means um, state of purity and stillness that <coughs> concentrates. And it crosses over what's called samlan, which is a scatterance, kind of a murky confusion that's like a, a wheel that's out of round. Okay, When you have samadhi, your wheel is perfectly in sync. And then the last one is called prajna, wisdom, which crosses over delusion or wrong views. Okay, so giving, precepts, patience, vigor, samadhi, wisdom. We're on page 90 and 91 in our text, 90 and 91. So those are the, the six paramitas. They cultivate all the paramitas. Bodhisattvas are always 
Um, finding ways to wake others up the way they have awakened to the value of crossing over from where we find ourselves in confusion to that other shore of wisdom. Um, They cultivate all the paramitas. Now, to be completely precise, there are actually ten. There are ten paramitas, but mostly we talk about the six. And in Chinese, they're also called the liu du, the six ways to go across. Or liu bo lo mi. Here it's what? Xiu xing bo lo mi. They cultivate the paramitas. Yuan li chan yu kuang kuang. They leave flattery and deceit far behind. Okay, we're getting into one of the main topics of tonight, which is speech. They leave flattery and deceit far behind. Chan, chan mei. Xu. Xu kuang is falseness, lying, deceit. They leave that behind. They don't engage in lying. They don't deceive people with their words. Ru shuo er xiu xing. They cultivate the way they talk. In English, what do we say? Practice what you preach. Right? You are as good as your word. If you can say it, if you say it, you certainly can do it. If you don't do it, you don't promise that you will. You do what you say. You keep your word. You're as good as your word. You stand behind your word. You practice what you preach. Look at all the phrases that we have to, to talk about that. Anju shi yu zhong dei anju. This phrase comes up a lot in the sutra. Literally, peacefully abide. In other words, they make their home. They are at home. They're, they're, they live there. They live in true speech. Anju, and they do it peacefully. So that concept is interesting because it's really the, that's a phrase that comes up all the time. Peacefully abide. They inhabit a place. That's what they, they make their home in real speech. Okay, so we've got three sentences here that are talking about language. Yuan li chan shi kuang ru shuo er xiu xing anju shi yu zhong. They go away from falseness. They don't practice, they don't engage in lying, phoniness, delusion, cheating. Those are all words that would work for that. They do what they say. If they say it, as they say it, so do they do it. And thusly, they live in real language. True speech. Okay. Um, I think people are often surprised to, when they come to, when they dig into Buddhism, to discover how much uh, Dharma teaching focuses on behavior. When I first started, I thought it was meditation. That was it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Zen, right? Zen had to do with sitting in the mountains and, and getting free. I was just applying my old James Bond understanding to my new lifestyle, 
right? It had nothing to, to do with actually what the Buddha taught. Once you poke around, once you go deeper, once you start to kind of turn the page, go to the next page in Buddhist practice, you discover all this kind of uncomfortable feeling that the Buddha is talking right to you. Kind of like looking in a mirror and seeing an ugly face reflected back. The Buddha is talking about what we do as the next step. Okay, meditation is good. Enjoy it. What's the next step? Buddha says, look at your behavior. You can go deeper, 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 but the road to going deeper has to do with who you are. More important than what you do. And, um, let me give an example of what I'm talking about. I didn't, when I was growing up, good and evil were truly something that philosophers talked about. Good and evil was for Sunday morning in church and you felt kind of guilty for a few minutes when the, the pastor was giving his sermon and then you forgot about it, went on and lived your life. And good and evil was, it was abstract. It was somehow decided up in heaven and didn't have much to do with me on a daily basis. Now, mind you, I was a callow adolescent, a young man growing up and... Um, I didn't see many consequences to my behavior. It didn't really matter as long as I didn't like break the laws of the society. I had no clue that there were inner laws that were going to govern my spiritual life that really had huge consequences from things like telling a lie. No idea. That was totally not part of my understanding that the Buddha was going to be an ethical teacher. That's so much of what the Buddha taught had to do with behavior. No idea. And if I'd known it at the start, chances are I would have run the other way. But what made the difference was seeing Master Shrenhua embody ethical behavior. What it meant to live that way. What you got from putting your body and mouth and mind into this kind of a mold. If you think of like a cookie cutter, and it has cookie dough, and you go stomp, stomp. You get a gingerbread man, and you go stomp. You get a little star, Christmas cookies, right? Dharma, the word fa, dharma, translates often as a mold, something that molds human people into the shape of arhats, sages, buddhas, bodhisattvas. It's a stamp but you have to fit into the mold. And what do you put in there? You put your body, your mouth, and your mind and what they do. Words, thoughts, speech. So here's the one about the mouth. How interesting. There are ten good deeds. There's that uncomfortable feeling. Good, capital G. Ten good deeds. And there are ten evil deeds. The ten good deeds, of the ten, three have to do with the body. Three have to do with the mind. Four have to do with the mouth. So speech comes in for a huge amount of focus in the Buddha's teaching. He spent a lot of time talking about words. All right. Now, speech is a human... Humans have carried speech to a profoundly subtle degree. Have you heard whales? Whale sounds, whale songs, amazing sounds from whales. Dolphins apparently have a huge vocabulary. 
Um, I was looking at a... Uh, somebody the other day introduced me to um, Australian sheepdogs. They're called blue... What are they? Blue something? Australian sheepdogs. They're blue colors, like blue healers. H-E-E-L-E-R. A blue healer is an Australian sheepdog. Australian sheepdogs have sometimes 120 bird vocabulary. Right? You can, if you train, there's in the description of these dogs, it said about six times, they need a job. These dogs need a job. Right? You take this dog and put him in the backyard and say, fetch, you know. The dog, uh uh. He wants to get his library card and read advanced engineering texts, right? That dog, you gotta put him in school. You have to give him work to do. Over and over it said, this dog needs a job. Otherwise, he'll go crazy and he'll drive you crazy. But give him a job and you have a happy dog. These are the dogs that herd people, right? You ever been with a dog who was like a working dog? They herd you. They'll, they'll like go around behind you and nudge you in the direction they want you to go. Seriously. And if you have little kids, these dogs will round them up. You know, yeah, get them up. You know, the dogs take care. They herd you. They really do. These are amazing working dogs. 180 word vocabulary. Amazing. These are the dogs that like, if you are out in a field of tall grass and they have 30 sheep in front of them, they will jump straight up and when they're above the grass they go like this and then they back down they jump up and they see where the sheep are and then they go out and they bring all the sheep in and you can go gee ha left right and the dog goes got it left right amazing dogs okay 130 words pretty astounding I mean there are some children who by age you know three don't have that many words humans have a power of speech that you know, we are gifted with the power of speech. How incredible. And yet, how many of us consider that a blessing and marvel in it, wonder in it? You know, it it's enough. I mean, that just the ability to speak is such an incredible thing. I'm, I am here all day long these days with Master Dashing. Right? And Dashing Pasher grew up speaking Italian. And every now and then somebody will call and it's Italian phone call. And, and he, you know, he's off. And you can just see, you know, all the lights come on and he's having a wonderful time talking. And then it's back time to speak English and we're going, yeah, I pretty much understand. You know, he's trying. And I speak Italian. I have two Italian words. You know, ciao, prego. That's it. You know, minestrone. You know. <laughs> linguini. Why? Because I saw Ratatouille, so I know about linguini. <laughs> but that's it. And so, you know, between two, lang- two people of good intention, the language is pretty much there. So what do we do? We use Chinese, which is what we really need to communicate. So it's like language in this gulf between two languages, there's silence or sign language or something. Yeah. Amazing. And yet, in Chinese... This is what? Chabe bades it, right? In French, it is a tasse. C'est une tasse, n'est-ce pas? Oui? 
Maintenant, c'est une COP. Right? In Québec, c'est une COP. So it's a TAS in Japanese. What is this in Japanese? Nihongo wa do. Nante masuka. Ocha no. Nante masen. So different languages. It's an object. If you say to the Chinese, this is a glass, they go, Bushu. Here's Chabar. Chabar. And so how strange. You know, language, this incredible gift of. And yet, in fact, is this a cup? It's not. No, it's hydrocarbons fired with a glaze. You know, if you break it, suddenly it's not a cup anymore. So what is language? It's a system that we have of symbols to make our way through space. Symbols that we attach to objects in order to, to interact with the things in the universe. It helps to have a name for them. But then, what if you go away from nouns and you go into something like bigger? Us, you know. Or how about happy? Show me a happy. No such thing, right? It's an emotion. Wow, language is amazing. And then what about prepositions? Between. Okay, show me a between. You know, how about with? Wow. Suddenly it's like we are gifted with this system of sounds and meanings. And you know what we do with it? We not only don't appreciate it, we go wrong with it. We use it to lie. We use language to curse. We use language to confuse. We use language to, to deceive Okay, how interesting that so much so that the Buddha had to say there are ten good deeds, four of them are done with the mouth. There are ten evil deeds, four of them are done with the mouth. Okay, so true speech is their refuge. They live in real words. Okay, coming up Next chapter, we're not there yet. This is the second ground. This is our first publication of the second ground. It's 1981. We translated the first, second, and third grounds. Maybe the fourth. And that's as far as we got. There's much, much more to come. So sometime in the year 2010... We're going to get to the second ground. We're now at the end of the first ground. And we're going to take the text out of this first attempt and massage it and improve it. Since 1981, 2001, 2010, we've been got two decades of, of space, two decades of experience. In the second ground of the Ten Grounds chapter, there's the section on ten good deeds and ten evil deeds. And of all the Buddha's sutras that I've read, this is the chapter in the sutra that is the clearest description of what to do and what not to do if you want to lead an ethical life, an ethically consistent and 
wise life. What to do, what not to do. And if you do the not, what happens? That's what's so neat about the second ground. It says, the bodhisattva does not tell lies. And it goes on to say how what bodhisattvas, the words that they avoid, and then the words they say. And that's not all. It goes on to say, if you tell lies, you can, in serious cases, lose your human body. If you come back as a human in the next life, having told lies, there will be two things that will happen to you. And it goes A and B. It's cause and effect from the Buddhist point of view, and it's really amazing. You want to hear one? Okay. The Bodhisattva by nature does not lie. The Bodhisattva always utters true speech, actual speech, timely speech, to the point that even in a dream, he would not consent to utter covering or hiding speech. He would never think of wanting to do so, much the less deliberately tell a lie. says here we go the offense of lying can cause beings to fall into the three evil destinies if they are born among people they have two kinds of retribution one they will be slandered a lot two they will be deceived by others Okay, what does it say? It says, first of all, that bodhisattvas don't lie. Even in their dreams, they don't, it says, consent to speaking, hiding, or covering speech. So, if, that's how bodhisattvas speak, if you tell a lie on purpose, you can lose your human body. Two things will happen. One is, other people will speak bad about you and two, other people will cheat you. It's like, that's interesting. Okay, think about it. Have you ever had an experience where out of the blue, somebody cheated you? I have. Have you ever had an experience where out of the blue, you discovered that people were talking bad on you and you only found out about it later somebody came up and said you know what she said about you and it was true that they, she really did it wasn't schism making that's a really sinking feeling in your stomach the bottom drops out just for no reason that you know of somebody is telling tales about you and you want to say but wait that's not true and you notice in the eyes of your friends there's a kind of a you know they don't meet your eyes because they've heard it and they believe it right that's an uncomfortable feeling people slander you two if you have ever been really cheated by somebody and ripped off 
Often it's because it's to do with money or stuff or a bargain or I mean a, a business deal or something. But just lied to. It's a real scary, unjust feeling. It's a feeling of injustice. How could that happen to me? Okay, what the sutra is saying is things like that don't happen without a cause. If that happens to us, and I imagine it happens to all of us at some point, right? If that happens to us, the sutra says it's useful, it's helpful to reflect and say, could I have done that to somebody else? Could I have planted the seeds in empty space of being cheated or lied to or deceived, it says, because I lied with my own tongue? Maybe, maybe. It's a useful reflection to think about that. So here's the sutra saying, uh, Take it backwards. If you completely tell the truth all the time and never tell a lie, you get two kinds of reward, retribution. One is a, an untarnished reputation. And two, everyone you meet treats you honorably. That's neat. Flip it over. And you get if you do it precisely, you get the other side of these precepts, which is, if I would like to live a life where everybody says really good things about me from their hearts, they really feel that this person is, is a good person and they, when they talk about him, they hold him in high esteem or her in high esteem. And furthermore, you never encounter a situation where people lie to you or cheat you it's because you spoke true. Because you told the truth. That's how the sutra would paint it. So, why is that neat? It's neat because if you get into the idea, it means that you can take charge of your future. You can become the architect of your future such that all the time people talk good about you and you're never cheated. Why? Because you plant the seeds that lead to that kind of response. In other words, you tell the truth all the time. What's neat about it is empowering. You're in charge, says the sutra. It's really up to us to do the things that lead to that result that we're looking for. Plant those seeds, you get that fruit. That's the Buddha's message here. So, interesting. Okay, one more. His nature does not engage in double-tongued speech called liang shu. The bodhisattva towards all living beings has no thought of dividing them against each other. He has no thought of troubling or harming he doesn't report the speech of one person to break him off from a second person to that second person, nor does he report the speech of the second person to break him off from the first person to that person. If people have not already broken with each other, he does not break them up. If they have already broken with each other, he does not increase the break. 
He doesn't enjoy dividing people against each other, nor is he happy when people are divided against each other. He does not utter speech that would divide people against each other, nor does he report speech that would divide people against each other, regardless of whether it is true or false. Okay. Now, let's look at the consequences here. It says... Here we are. The offense of double-tongued speech causes beings to fall into the three evil destinies. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, their circle will be separated. Two, their caste will be base. What does that mean? It means, likewise, that... The Bodhisattva doesn't speak double-tongued speech. We'll, we'll just go back. Double-tongued speech means two things. Gossip. Carrying tales, in other words. Did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe it. It's true, though. So-and-so said so. It must be true. Right? Gossip. In Chinese, it's called shi shi fei fei, rights and wrongs. And it also means tiao bo li jian breaking people up where you deliberately go to two people who are friends and tell one about the other person and then go to the other person and tell them about the first person. And it entirely came from your mouth. In fact, between the people, there wasn't anything until you said it. That's called schism making. And you do it between friends, you do it between in companies, you do it between teammates, you do it between... Uh, parties, political... So, though that's called an offense of false speech. The Buddha said, in the middle of the magic of language, people do this. I have done it. Right? We do it. Okay, so, the Buddha says, the Bodhisattva does not do that. He doesn't utter speech, which he knows is going to break people up, whether it's true or not. He doesn't pass it on if somebody else says it. Whether it starts from him or from somebody else, the Bodhisattva doesn't speak this way. Now, it says, if you do, if we do, what happens? We can lose our human body. If we're born among people, there are two retributions. One, it says, right? our circle, our community, will separate. And two, our caste will be base. Now, that means station in life. We don't have the caste system. But what it means is, you're going to, first of all, first one, if because of my words, people who originally were together find themselves enemies or separated, the result of that is what? My own family, community, friends won't be able to be together. For some reason, I'll be apart from them. I want to be with them. Can't be. Why? Because of things I said. If I was busy with my tongue breaking people up, the result is lonely from your blood relatives. Two, it says, your caste will be base. 
Which means, if I spend a lot of my time talking rights and wrongs, then it's very hard to find nobility. It's hard to find chingao, this kind of pure and um, kind of dignity because of the seeds that I plant with my own tongue which tear down that sense of honor. Okay, flip it over. Now, these could be big bummers. You know, as I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm watching people's faces, right? We're all going, oh my God, that's why I did you know, Who knew? Okay, so I had the very same reaction when I read this the first time. Flip it over and make it proactive. If I want a family that is solid and connected and stable, then I don't gossip. In fact, I, if I have to talk about others, I praise. Two, if I refuse to split people up and don't speak with the image of two tongues, right? Yang shu, double tongue speech, then what happens? Naturally, I'm in this family of nobility, of dignity, of honor. The people I hate, doesn't mean money, right? Caste will be based. Brahmins aren't necessarily wealthy, but it means that you're in a place that is honorable. You rise to the top in society because you don't tear down. So, interesting, right? Powerful stuff. How many tears have been shed because of these principles, right? The stories that gather around these principles. These are just principles. The Buddha is saying, here's how it works. Take a look. And we are empowered. Suppose we say, yeah, my life has been one story after another of, you know, this kind of heartache. Well, starting from this instant, turn it around and use these rules to speak words that bring people together. We have a nun. Um, I won't give you her name because that would be, for me, gossip about somebody who refuses to gossip. She is famous for never gossiping. Famous among the Sangha. She's well known for being someone who, if she hears talk about a third party, she just closes her mouth. And it's amazing to see that dynamic because we're not aware of it so much. If you're standing with like three people or four people and somebody says, why well, I can't believe someone's about that. Then it goes around the circle and the next person goes, yeah, yeah, I saw that too. And it goes to this, this nun and she goes. <laughs> and the first two people go, oh, I see. It's amazing how much depends upon the group's willingness to bring in this invisible person and talk bad. Right? And if one person stops, it's like the whole thing goes, smells like a fart. Right? There it is. And it's like, that stinks. Who said that? You did. So did I. That stinks. 
simply because one person just goes, mm, not going to do that. Amazing dynamic. And invisible unless one person says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to participate. So simple, and yet what a difference it makes to have one, even one person. So as a result, guess what? When that particular nun in our board meetings, when she has an opinion about something, people, it's like they listen with two and a half ears. Just naturally, her opinion carries more weight. It's funny. And she just has an, you know, it's just an opinion. But it gets added oomph because she doesn't gossip. So that's number two. Number three, here we go. The Bodhisattva. Here we go. His nature, her nature, does not engage in harsh speech. That is, cruel, malicious speech. Coarse, wild speech. Speech that brings suffering to others. Speech that provokes anger and hatred in others. Blunt speech. Furtive speech. Vile and evil speech. Cheap and vulgar speech. Speech unpleasant to hear. Speech that does not delight the listener. Angry, hateful speech. Speech that burns the heart like fire. Speech bound up in resentment. Heated, irritating speech. Disagreeable speech. Displeasing speech. Speech that can destroy oneself and others. All such types of speech as those he completely abandons. More. He always, she always utters kind, encouraging speech, soft and gentle speech, speech that delights the mind, speech pleasant to the listener, speech that makes the listener happy, speech that enters into people's hearts skillfully, elegant and refined speech, speech agreeable to most people, speech that gladdens most people, and speech that brings joy to body and mind. Man, how about that? That's all one kind of Wang Yu, which is called harsh speech. We don't say to people, you speak harshly. What do we say? You got a potty mouth. Right? We talk about four-letter words. Okay? That's what this is talking about. Profanity. Right? The Bodhisattva doesn't use four-letter words. It's not hip. Right? There's a movie now called Kick-Ass. Did you know that? It's like that's how mainstream that phrase has become that it's a movie title now. And it's like if you ever had your ass kicked, it's really, not only does it hurt, but it hurts your heart. Right? Those kind of words, when I was growing up, nobody would have said kick-ass. You know, much less done it, you know, or made it a value. Yeah, kick butt. And it's like, come on, you don't do that. How much the less do people use four-letter words when they're cultivating? Yet we're so used to it. It's so mainstream that we get numb to the impact. 
Here's the sutra saying, you hear that list, right? Speech that brings suffering to others. If you call somebody, four-letter word, a profane name, it hurts, right? The Buddha said, that's false speech. It's an evil, he said. But bodhisattvas, I like this because it rounds it out, bodhisattvas instead speak soft, gentle speech, speech that delights the mind. When you hear it, you go, it brings light, it blesses. How different, right? What else? Speech pleasant to the listener, speech that makes listeners happy, speech that goes into your heart skillfully. Bodhisattvas take the time and understand the power of language to benefit. How amazing the power of language. Phil? Uh, there's an online question uh, okay. relating to speech and parents and parenting. Hmm. And that question is? The question is how do you basically how do you use speech? If you're a parent. Avoid saying, wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> That's one. Um, two, if it's possible, avoid saying, because I said so. Okay, now, I'm, I don't want to be facetious, because why? I'm not a dad. I don't have any kids. And I don't have to get up in the morning with the kids at the breakfast table and go to sleep with them in front of their laptops. So, a lot of what I might say in regard to that question, that you can discount to that point, because I don't have the daily, daily, daily. That really is where the work is. Um, so I can't preach to parents. I can sympathize with parents and appreciate how difficult it is. Um, and I also can point to the power of models, role models. How did your parents do? We will probably imitate them unconsciously. Because why? That's the example of adulthood that we got. And we are mostly still monkey see, monkey do. It's true. It's the rare individual who can break away from patterns they saw up to age three and forge their own wiser pattern. A lot of our ability to respond in language is formed before age three. It's true. I saw the pictures myself. It was actually a Newsweek article uh, a decade ago that was doing brain scans uh, of, of uh, uh, young children. These were pediatric researchers, pediatric neuro pediatric um, neurology, is that the word I want to use? They were doing brain work with children. And what they discovered was kids who got talked to a lot between ages one and three had a part of the brain that was developed at the, it was given this, the relative size of the child's brain 
it was might have been the medulla oblongata. I don't know which part of the brain. It's the language part, right? It was like a walnut. It was healthy and exercised. Those were kids who had been talked to. The parents spoke to them, read, read to them. The kid could watch the parents say words a lot. You know, they heard a lot. They, they saw people talking to each other. They heard a lot of vocabulary. They heard songs, different rhythms, poetry, you know, um, music. And so that part of the brain was good. And it's good from three until 93. It's, that's pretty much it was developed. And that development happens in those first three years. The capacity to later acquire language. Okay, then they did the same scans of babies' brains who didn't get that exposure from one to three. And that part of the brain was more like a green pea or a lima bean, right? Just like that instead of a walnut. And those are kids who their parents basically said to them, Shut up! Quit that! Because I said so! Right? And same potential three years. But those are kids who in later life, their teens, their 20s, 30s, 40s, don't have the, the hardware to actually acquire language and along with it, thinking and the subtlety. So how scary to realize how you know, the vital necessity to talk to our kids. And it's also, you can see how certain cultures will perpetuate intellectual pursuits. Um, think about, for example, in the Chinese cultural world, there's something called Tai Jiao, right? Education for the womb. Before kids are born, mom is in there reading them Tang Shi San Bai Shao, you know, Shi San Jing, Xiao Jing, Wu Jing, you know. Mom, I'm not even born yet. Give me a break. So, Tai Jiao is specifically that. Before the kid is even out breathing on their own, they're getting a sense of there is one, right? Zhong Wen the one, Xue Wen the one. There is that, that is there to be learned. And so kids get to Cal, get their doctorates, and go off and become Nobel Prize winners. You know, because why? That part of the brain was exercised. And kids that don't think of their horizon, right? What's ahead? Harder. Harder. So, language, right? Really powerful. And if those words are agreeable, speech that gladdens the heart, speech that brings joy to body and mind, you are without a penny being spent enriching that child's entire experience in a human body.
So the Bodhisattva doesn't use profanity. Instead, uses words that give joy to the child. Okay, ready for the, the whammy? The offense of harsh speech also causes living beings to fall into the three evil paths. If they are born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, they will always hear disagreeable sounds. And two, they will always be involved in lawsuits. How about that? So, what are the retributions? One is if you um, use harsh speech all the time, then around you, you're going to hear squealing breaks, arguments, things exploding, uh, random noise. You'll live in a place that is not tranquil because you have created with your words this harsh force field. And you live there. Literally, it's all made from the mind. Everything is made from the mind alone, including kind of the sound landscape of our environment. Our oral, A-U-R-A-L, oral landscape, is made by us primarily. So, flip it around. If you speak in the wholesome ways the Bodhisattva is talking, if you speak lovely, delightful speech, speech that gladdens the heart, then, guess what? You're going to live in a place where there is blessed silence and bird songs and people with gentle voices and Chopin preludes <laughs> at lunch, right? That's what we played. We played that today at lunch today with Chopin. Ivo Pogorelich playing Chopin preludes. Beautiful. And two, the other one that's fascinating is if you speak harshly, you're going to be litigated against all the time. And what is much lawsuits? The world of lawyers and courts and all of the, the uh, ritual that goes on around courts of law is a very strange world. My father was a lawyer and uh, right and wrong can be turned totally upside down in the court of law. Uh, it's harsh, right? Two, if you avoid that and always speak in a delightful way, you don't set foot in courts. Nobody sues you because your words have always allowed people to go, oh, forget it. I don't care. Let it go. I forgive. I'm not going to fight with you with words. Interesting, huh? Okay, we got one more to go. Isn't this incredible? And these are like, I've given you three out of ten. The ten good deeds each have their how-to and what happens if you don't. Okay, what's the fourth kind of false speech? We've had lies, double-tongued speech, harsh speech, and what's the last one? Don't answer. Last one is? Anybody know? What is it? Silence. That's harsh mind. No, not, silence is not necessarily a false speech. Any more? Any more guesses? Wang Yu. Tim? Idle speech. I'll give you three stars out of five. Because the actual one is called frivolous speech. 
frivolous speech. You know what it was. Okay, five stars to ten. Good. Here it is. Wang Yu Liang She Qi Yu. Qi is embroidery. It means two things. It means words that number one are just prattle, kind of like static on the radio. You can't quite make out the voice. You can't quite adjust the dial. Today's new. Right? And another kind of chi is words that you know are going to lead the mind in the wrong direction. Dirty jokes. Or suggestive speech. Lewd speech that makes the mind go <laughs> right? Certain kind of comedians who used to just talk mean and dirty. You know who they are? Right? That's frivolous speech. Okay. Here we go. His nature does not engage in loose, frivolous speech. The Bodhisattva always delights in thoughtful, examined speech, in appropriate speech, in true speech, meaningful speech, lawful speech, speech that accords with principles of the Tao, skillfully timed and regulated speech, speech reckoned and measured according to the time, that is decisive. This Bodhisattva, even when making jokes, always weighs his words. How much less would he deliberately pour out scattered and abandoned, ab- scattered and abandoned talk? All right. Not loose, but instead thoughtful and appropriate. Here we go. The offense of frivolous speech causes beings to fall into the three evil paths. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, people will not accept what they say. Two, their speech will not be clearly understood. Now, if you were here last week, you heard my sad story that I told, which was... uh, Discovering that chapter, that line in the Avatamsaka Sutra and feeling like I had looked into a mirror. What does it say? It says the Bodhisattva speaks thoughtfully. He would not say, she would not say anything that caused beings to lose their mindfulness. Even when telling a joke, the Bodhisattva has a purpose in mind. It's not just scattered. Blah, 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 blah. Rattle, 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 rattle. Like that. Okay. The, the thing that caught me up short was the, the summary. If a bodhisattva, or if, any, if somebody, let's say, if anybody, not a bodhisattva, if somebody speaks frivolously, you can lose your human body. If you're born as a human, there are two kinds of retribution. One is people don't accept what you say and two, nobody understands what you meant. That is a recipe for frustration. Do you want to live... If, you're, if you, Let's say you live in a community. If you, if you live by yourself, who cares what you say? Nobody can hear it, right? The squirrels and the birds, the bugs don't care. Okay, if you're with people, especially with, if you're guys, you know, 
guys are kind of pack animals, and kind of like you, you know, you got to keep your keep your status, keep your face. Everybody knows who's the alpha dog, and going down. You want to be respected among, you know, guys. That's pretty much. I think maybe women are the same. I don't know. When it comes time to discuss something and make a decision, whose word carries? Well, you'd say the person who's got virtue. That would be my answer. The person whose words seem to kind of hit the spot. All right. In that situation, if every time you open your mouth, people go, what? You're crazy. What are you talking about? Do you understand what you're saying? No, forget it. It hurts. It's painful to always be misunderstood and not accepted. Kind of negated just because you said it. It's wrong after a while. And that's what happens in a group dynamic is if that's if you have that thing going pretty soon people just don't want to hear your sound. That was my life for years. But only after I I did what I let's see. That was my experience was I rarely said things that people took seriously. And it didn't occur to me that it was connected to something else I was doing. When I read the Avatamsaka, I was in the middle of the third year, second year of my silence vow. I'd already been silent for two years, hadn't spoken for two years. And when you don't talk, words echo. I would be bowing for eight hours a day and I hadn't talked that morning and I wasn't going to talk that night and I hadn't spoken last week, I hadn't spoken last month, and I hadn't spoken last year, right? And when you bow, and the person I was with, Marty, talked. He talked all the time. And his words would really kind of stay with me as I bowed because I was silent. Okay, the sutra's words ten times more echoed, went deep into your consciousness. So here we were, we crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, we're in Marin County, and we get to this part of the sutra, because we would do a little bit of sutra every night. And suddenly I saw that growing up, I wasn't particularly muscular, I wasn't, I never made the varsity. I was an athlete, but I didn't make the, the first team. Uh, and so I would always mostly sit on the bench, you know, and play in the... the, the uh, scrimmages and and every, the practices but I didn't get into the game and so I didn't I couldn't be a jock you know with at that level and so I had to pretty much use my words to make points how did I do it I wanted to be liked so I would tell jokes I was a funny guy and do anything to get a laugh true or false didn't matter as much as getting a laugh. Because that was a way to score points. If you can't if you're not tall enough to score them on a basketball court, you score points by making people laugh. 
okay, well, I didn't have enough virtue or wisdom to say there are certain jokes I won't tell because they're not true. No, I would just say it anyway to get a laugh. Frivolous speech. That's what I did. And I never thought of it that way. I never saw that frame for my state of mind. When I ran into that in the sutra, it hit like a pound of bricks. It was just like, that's my face. And two nights later, we got in the passage and said, if you talk that way, you know what happens? Number one, people don't accept your words. Two, they don't understand what you said. And that was the clinker. That was exactly what had been frustrating me forever and forever was being considered totally a lightweight. My opinions were unimportant. Nobody had to listen to what I said because why? It didn't matter, even if they understood it. It didn't matter. It didn't have any weight. And that was painful. That was really painful to realize that that experience that I had of when it came time to really say something that mattered, you know, have an opinion, nobody cared what I thought. Because why? I was the joke guy. I thought, whoa. Thank you, Avatamsaka Sutra. That stings. <laughs> oh, man. But it's like medicine. And I realized that um, taking a vow of silence gave me a chance to really, really feel what I had done and change it at the root. So, anyway, um, I for the question that came online, I didn't give enough of an answer, except just to say I kind of disqualified myself. Um, let me just go back and say one more thing. Um, if um, I were a parent, I would want to get in touch with the source of my speech patterns for my kids. Who was my model? Who did I see talking to their kids? Was it a successful model? Were your parents, did they raise you well in terms of talk? If so, chances are you're doing it well. It sure isn't easy. If you resented the way your parents talked to you growing up, right? Things saying things like, because I said so. Or you're using a lot of profanity or harsh speech to your kids, then maybe it's because that's what you heard and your kids hate it as much as you did. So, looking at the sutra is really useful for all of us to be able to say, hmm, where did I learn my speech habits? Who was my model for putting words into space? Could I do it differently? Would I get a different response from my kids if I talk differently? Maybe. That would be a useful way. So, for me to say, oh, this is what you should do, baloney, I don't know. But I will say that we probably are imitating models we saw. 
And if our, for dads, right, it was the adult male. Who was the alpha male in your house? Well, if he was a mean SOB, don't be a mean SOB, right? Try a different model. You'll get a different response for sure. And the sutra wants us to do what? To experiment, to get in there, try it, take charge. Don't just monkey see, monkey do, especially if your monkey was mean and didn't share the bananas. Share the bananas. Who says you got to be mean because your dad was or, you, or somebody's dad, right? Who says? No, try it another way. Check the results. Do it scientifically. The sutra, re, the Buddha failed and started over, right? The Buddha tried to starve himself. He tried to be mean to his body. I'll end desire. I'll starve you, right? Our, our PBS, PBS movie. And it didn't work. He's going to die instead. Well, your family can die. Your family can shrivel up. All the love can go out if you don't give him some bananas. You know. So what the Buddha did was he said, no, I better eat something. And did and became the Buddha. So check it out. I mean, use an empirical method. Say, oh, this isn't working very well. Based on the feedback I'm getting from my kids and my wife and everybody else. So maybe I'll try this and get better results. And things work better. So it's, you know, the, the, the background for this, as I'm, I'm responding to the question that came online, the background is that in empty space, we can do anything we want. There's no fixed dharmas. They say, fa wu ding fa. There are no fixed dharmas. If you're not happy with the results you're getting, plant different causes. If the fruit that you're eating is bitter, plant something sweet. Water it, fertilize it, and grow different plants. Then things go better. And I think every, you know, why are we in a family? We're in a family, you know, because of some affinities that we've tied up with each other. But if because we're under the same roof in this family, we treat other people with harshness, it will come back to us. And we will experience harshness. That's in empty space. The Buddha's message is cause and effect is really true. Master Shri used to always say, he would say, um, don't even have mean thoughts to people, towards other people. Don't even allow your mind to think harsh thoughts to other people because cause and effect is li hai. Cause and effect is never off. And when it comes back to us, we will not want it. So, what are we saying? Golden rule. Treat people the way we would like to be treated. Don't treat people the way we don't want to be treated. That was really his message over and over and over again. So, speech is a perfect place to look at that. If, if we are speaking harshly and like that, then take a look and say, How's it working? If the feedback you're getting from those other human beings who happen to live there with you is it's not working very well, try something different. But the reward will certainly be there.
there's never any result that doesn't come from a cause. And our future is being made right this minute. So, Okay, so that's a... I don't have kids, but that's at least a principle. And there's nothing given, you know. Um, what do they say? Uh, birds, at the end of their lives, birds' songs are sad. At the end of people's lives, our words are true. Right? If we wait until the very end, we'll be saying, gee, I really regret having said all those things. But if you know that, then don't say them now, by God. Easy to say, hard to do. Those habits die hard. So, in your sutra there, you've got a uh, dedication of merit page, which would be nice to share now with everybody. And everybody means everybody that our minds touch. We can uh, send those thoughts of goodness out very far. You've been seeing the um, the reports about Haiti and the rain. I've been reading about the rains in Haiti. There are hundreds of thousands of people in Haiti who have not gotten a tent yet. Can you imagine? They have, uh, some of them have like bed sheets strung up, but when the hurricanes come, which they're coming, it's going to be really something in Haiti. The suffering is going to intensify. So, what I'm suggesting is that we just don't forget and move on. Uh, Certainly all eyes are on Poland today. Uh, 96 people died all at once in a 26-year-old Russian-built airplane that was repaired last year. And uh, judging from what I read, the pilot was told not to try to land in Minsk, was it? Because it was foggy and he went ahead and did it anyway. And as the plane was landing, it it uh, it broke apart, and all those most of the leadership of military and society in Poland perished all at once. So <coughs> that's a tragedy. And uh, if we ah right right thanks. if we can dedicate merit, um, we can do something to work directly on the causes that create those results because it's really made from the mind so and you may have other uh, places that you would like to dedicate your merit so please do it
Um, this, we did this in January because it was a brand new song. We haven't done it since. Let's see if. Outside in, inside out. Buddha's mind, big and bright. Watch your breath, fill with light. This is uh, Sundarananda, who's uh, one of the Buddha's disciples. Who um, um, awoke, he woke up. He's one of the 25 sages from the Sharangama Sutra. And he, uh, when Manjushri Bodhisattva asked him, what was the best way to wake up? He said... That you should be mindful of the breath. Kind of a a uh, that's become a kind of a a standard in American vipassana style. 
mindful of the breath. But Sundarananda was really specific. And uh, the Buddha told him to focus on the tip of your nose. And there's a whiteness, said the Buddha, that, that you'll notice here as you patiently observe your breath coming and going. Then it looks like smoke and then it refines and then it turns white and then an inner light lights up the world from your body and mind. So I thought, boy, there's a good song. Here we go. Sundarananda tried to meditate but he couldn't get it straight so he asked the world on earth one to teach him how to concentrate breathing in breathing out outside in inside out Buddha's mind big and bright watch your breath and fill with light my mind was scattered too many outflows the Buddha pointed to the tip of my nose focus on the whiteness patiently observe your breath how it comes and goes breathing in breathing out outside in inside out Buddha's mind big and bright Watch your breath and fill with light. Watch your breath and you will find at first like smoke, then it refines. The breath turns white, then inner light lights the world from your body and mind. Join me. Breathing in, breathing out, outside in, inside out. Buddha's mind, big and bright. Watch your breath and feel Okay, anyway, that one needs some more work. Sundarananda.